Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast, where we're working to help you call a truce with your anxiety. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Now, here's your host, Elizabeth Cush, LCPC. Welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cush. I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor here in Annapolis, Maryland. And uh, today we're going to be talking to Nalaja Green. But before we get started with that, if you would like the podcast delivered directly to your inbox, just sign up for the newsletter. Go to progressioncounseling.com or womanwarriors.com. There is a form on both pages to sign up for the newsletter. Just scroll down to the bottom of the page, and there's a little form to fill out there. You can also go to the show notes on the podcast page, and there is a sign up for the newsletter in the show notes for each episode as well. Today, my guest is Dr. B. Nalaja Green who writes, speaks, and engages at the intersections of individual psychological distress and collective sociocultural oppression. As an Atlanta-based licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Green is certified in trauma-informed care and delivering specialized trauma treatments to vulnerable populations such as military veterans, Black women, and members of the LGBTQ community. She writes, leads workshops and trainings, asking clinicians to cultivate their own introspective practice and to approach care of clients with greater cultural humility. In addition to her formal training and years of clinical experience, Dr. Green has also incorporated her love of creative writing and journaling into her clinical work. In service to the community, she created an award-winning community writing group for healers for four years in the Atlanta area. As the foundation for her career, Dr. Green received a BA in English and Psychology from Georgetown University and her doctoral degree in clinical and community psychology from Georgia State University. She completed her internship and postdoctoral training at Yale University Department of Psychiatry in New Haven, Connecticut. She currently lives in Atlanta with her spouse and their adopted dog, Bean. And today we are going to be talking about some of her research around strong black women and the strong black woman paradigm and how it relates to mental health. We'll explore how the characteristics developed, but also some surprising results that she found out from her research. Let's get started with the conversation. Hi, Nalaja. Welcome to the Woman Warriors podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to talk to you and uh, or talk to you further. I know we've talked on the phone, but uh, I'm excited to 
have the to do the interview. And if you wouldn't mind telling the listeners a little bit about you and what inspired you to do the work that you do. So I am originally from Brooklyn, New York, and I kind of grew up uh, in a family of kind of warrior women, if you will. Mm, Love Um, that. Women who were courageous and fierce and also vulnerable, uh, who strived to live as authentically as possible, um, but for many reasons that wasn't always possible. So I think early on, I learned about the value of paying attention, paying attention to our inner experiences and paying attention to our relationships, which really uh, fostered a curiosity in me about how we heal as human beings and how we navigate trauma. And so kind of fast forward my life, I found myself in college majoring in English and psychology and Following uh, my graduation, I moved to South Africa for a year. I lived in Johannesburg doing some volunteer work. Wow. And when I came back to the States, I had to make a decision. Am I going to be a writer? Um, Am I going to pursue these other kind of creative interests I had? I had been doing some dancing uh, internationally. Hmm. Or am I going to try this thing of um, getting a PhD in psychology? And although I had had a lot of experience, I didn't know if I was ready to go. Um, to the next step to get my doctorate. And so I kind of played around and I thought, well, maybe I can get a master's degree and and see about Mm -hmm. going into the doctoral level. But I ran into a Black woman who was much older than me, an elder, who had her PhD. And she asked me, she said, well, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be a doctor. I I want to be a psychologist. And so she said, go for that. Mm. And I said, but I don't know if I can. She said, no, 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 go for that. And I think that's a really important intersection between kind of my personal experiences and how it intersects with my professional experiences. Because I think often as Black women, we don't think that we're good enough. We don't think that we have enough of the right things. We don't think that other people will validate us or or take us seriously enough. So to hear this older Black woman kind of give me the go ahead to Mm. pursue a dream yeah. Um, was really meaningful. And so in graduate school, I started to study the strong Black woman paradigm and its relationship between depression and suicide. And I had always thought about the strong Black woman as this identity, mm-hmm. this way that uh, Black women kind of express themselves in the world. Mm-hmm. But through my research, I came to understand it less as an identity and more as a coping mechanism, that this was actually a tool. This was a survival technique that had developed over generations to navigate the often kind of dangerous, right, mm-hmm. sociopolitical yeah. terrain oh, yeah. that we live in, right, and that many of us are experiencing the results of today. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's kind of the, the quick and dirty Uh, how I got um, to be here. So, so explain, give us uh, uh, for listeners who might not uh, really understand the paradigm of, you know, or, or the, the, what a strong black woman encapsulates, like, tell us about that. So the strong black woman idea um, comes from a, a history of 
the exacerbation of some traits that were already present for uh, many of the African women who were transported here during enslavement Mm -hmm. and the exacerbation of those traits under the context of chattel slavery. And so what I mean is that most of the descendants of um, African enslaved people came from West Africa. Mm-hmm. And traditional West African societies had a role for women to play. And the roles that women occupied were of um, kind of artisans and creators. They were managing kind of their own uh, businesses, if you will, their own ways of um, creating um, kind of commerce in their communities. Mm-hmm. They also had caretaking roles, not only for their biological families, but also for kind of the children and other folks in the community. Yeah. Um, yeah. You were sort of describing it in the paper that I read as sort of, yeah, very uh, um, like a communal sort of responsibility for children. Yep. Um, cooking, uh, just household stuff, as well as the, the, the more, um, yeah, like making crafts and selling and being yep. yeah part of the commerce. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, right? So we can think of it as like internal responsibility and external responsibility. Right. Uh, so there was, there was this balance between independence and also interdependence. Mm. So then you have the experience of uh, the Ma'afa or the Middle Passage, and we arrive here in, uh, you know, what has been known as the New World. Mm. And these women are now in a position they haven't been in before. Um, For one, part of what the stripping away of freedom meant was also the loss of control over the very basic um, aspects of life that most of us take for granted. Uh, Not only, right, restricting movement, but restricting what your family looked like and how much control you had over how much your family remained the same. Right. Um, Right. So you could have children and maybe those children would stay with you or not. You uh, could be married or partnered to someone, and uh, of course, not legally, because we weren't allowed to legally marry yet. Um, And you didn't have control over whether or not that relationship was sustained because there were other people who had control over your life. Right. And so that really contributed to the development and the exacerbation of that independence that I talked about turning Mm -hmm. into self-reliance. And so self-reliance, what that looks like now is don't worry about it. I got it. I'll do Hmm. it. Like, I can't trust you to take care of this. I can't trust you to take care of me. I have to take care of everything. I am the person who is responsible. Mm. And then that takes us right to the caretaking piece. Now, coming from a collectivist culture, caretaking is something that is a a part of being a community member. Mm -hmm. Uh, I care for my children. I care for your children. Uh, you care for my children. It's right. a, an exchange. Yes, yes. Reciprocal, right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, and it's one of the things that keeps the community together, right? So that I know that if I am at the market and my children are hanging out in the community, I know that the other adults are looking out mm-hmm. for my children because there's a collective sense of responsibility. Right. But you take that caretaking and you put it in the context of being forced to care for other people and other people's children mm-hmm. and also having to care for the community members within enslavement. Yeah. So 
I am caring not only for my children and your children, but I'm also caring for Aunt Clara's children who maybe were sold away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also caring for the enslaver's children, whether I want to or not, regardless of how they treat me. Right, right. Well, and two, I might be carrying the child of the slave owner who I didn't even want that child anyway. <laughs> and I, now I have to take care of that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you're really speaking to a part of the trauma that uh, was also associated with caretaking that I am actually taking care of something that may have been a product of rape. Right. Uh, right. And, and so, you know, that's just another layer of how uh, the aspect of caretaking really took on a very different message and a really different function. Mm. Uh, so much of the choice was was released from that. This wasn't about choice. I'm not caring for you because I love you. I'm caring for you because I have to. I'm not right. caring for you as a community member. I'm caring for you uh, because if I don't care for you, my survival may be in jeopardy. Right. So we have this, this example of caretaking, uh, which we see often in uh, stereotypes like the mammy stereotype, mm-hmm. uh, where you have this woman who is kind of asexual and doesn't have a family of her own and doesn't have any needs of her own. Her sole job is to care for uh, the people that she's been charged with caring for. Mm. Yeah. So, so far we have self-reliance, we have caretaking, and then we have the third aspect. The third aspect of the strong Black woman coping mechanism is don't worry about me, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe my son just died, don't worry about me, I'm good, I got it. Maybe right. I just got divorced, don't worry about me, I'm good, I got it. Um, maybe yeah. I haven't, you know, been able to pay my bills in a month or so, but don't worry about me, right? I got it, yeah. I got it. Mm. Um, And not only do I have it, but like, I'm not shaken by it, right? I'm strong, so you're not going to see me afraid. You're not going to see me- Break um, down. Break down, right? You're not going to see me cry. None of those things that are considered vulnerable and tender feelings, Mm. you don't get to see them. Right. Now, if we think about the function of regulating affect in that way, regulating, right, your emotional expression. Mm -hmm. If I am in a position where I have to show up and do things, whether I feel like it or not, Mm -hmm. and my emotions can actually be used against me. Yeah. What is my choice? You're going to shut them down. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I'm going to shut them down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's survival, you know, I mean, if, if, yeah, if if lamenting, crying, wanting to keep your child that's going to be taken away from you would kill you or kill your child, like, of course, you're going to shut up and say, it's okay, I got this. Or, yes. Yeah. And the other piece of that is pride, right? Mm. Like, I, I don't necessarily want you to know how much you're getting to me. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. if you see my tears... Uh, if you see my fear, that might be yet another thing you can hold over my head, yet another way that you can manipulate me. Use um, me. Mm-hmm. Use me. Absolutely. And I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in giving you right any other uh, opportunities to, to control me and my experience. Yeah. So we can kind of see each of these three components as having a historical context for survival. Um, And they have kind of morphed and changed somewhat as we come into kind of our contemporary moment 
but many of the core characteristics remain the same. That self-reliance still looks like uh, many Black women having trouble trusting others in their lives, including their partners, to take care of themselves and take care of their lives, um, even things that may be considered small. Mm-hmm. Many Black women have the experience of prioritizing everyone else over them, whether we're talking about biological relatives or members of the community or members of their religious institutions, that mm-hmm. they right are on the bottom of the to-do list. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's hard to, to as a therapist, it's hard to... Um, sort of shift that paradigm or shift that idea that like everyone else's needs are more important than mine. I mean, it's a very rock solid perspective and comes from an an honestly realistic place in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you talking to women warriors, many women are familiar with this, Mm -hmm. especially women who have responsibilities outside of themselves. Um, such as children, right, or their caretaking parents, that sometimes the needs of other people are more immediate than your own needs. But what begins to happen is the more that message is reinforced, the more it becomes unacceptable for you Mm -hmm. to have needs, the more it becomes unacceptable for you to express what those needs are. So what may have started as a survival mechanism and is reinforced by societal messages actually then becomes a way of living. And as therapists, we know that there's only so long you can function not paying attention to your own needs and be in any way uh, effective for yourself or anyone else. Yes, yes. It's like, what do they say about the, I mean, yeah, put the air mask on yourself first and then- Absolutely. And then give it to others, but- Absolutely. Yeah, so- in your research, you know the the you're recognizing that yes, this coping mechanism is very strong and very ingrained, very much a part of being a black woman in America. Um, but there's there's stuff about this that's not so good that's actually yeah. hurting women's mental health. Yeah, absolutely, black women's mental health. So talk to us about that. That that. Um, how, how, what, what did you find in your research? So I like to talk about this carefully and with nuance mm-hmm. because um, strength for Black women really has been something that many women have felt proud of. And as a coping mechanism, it really has helped with survival. Oh, so, yeah. you know, I really want to let your listeners know that we can't just see this as one thing. Um, I do a lot of trauma work mm-hmm. and, and there's a, a, there can be a tendency to look at present characteristics uh, through a lens of resistance, for example, or um, uh, through a lens of um, judgment. Hmm. Yeah. But when yeah. we put right a, a, le- a trauma lens on many of the characteristics that show up as ineffective or unhelpful for our clients, we might be able to see, wait a minute, this characteristic that is not functional in some places is actually very functional in other places. Right, right. It came about for a very good reason. Absolutely. Right, yeah. And it still serves a purpose today Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it actually might be true that I have to um, be the person who 
is responsible in my home, uh, given the um, you know rates of discrimination and, and joblessness and um, incarceration rates of Black men if I'm in a heterosexual relationship, for example. Right. So they are they are tr- real truths uh, that exist today uh, mm-hmm. that keep the the strength uh, mechanism functional and helpful. Mm-hmm. So so I want to highlight that. I also though want to highlight the other piece that if I have learned that my job is to be responsible for everyone and everything to the exclusion of my needs, then that does put me in a place where often I am divorced from. Uh, my own maintenance, right? The Mm. things that keep me going, the things that nourish me. So I am essentially pouring from an empty vessel. Yeah. Like all the energy is going outward versus no energy. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The energy is going outward in terms of psychological energy, emotional Mm -hmm. energy, finances, time. Physical energy too. Yeah. Physical Absolutely. And so when all of those things go out and I feel depleted, Mm. who's going to pick me up? Right. Who's there for me? Right. Or who's there for you? Yeah. Absolutely. Who's going to support me? Yeah. Um, And how will I know when it's time to reach out? If I'm so used to being empty all the time, that might become my way of living. And I may not know, wait a minute, like there is another way to be in the world. Mm. there's another way to be not only for myself, but there's also another way to be in relationship that the cost of being in relationship with someone else doesn't have to be me sacrificing everything. Mm -hmm. I can have relationship with boundaries. Imagine that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I can have relationship where my needs are on the table and they're just as valuable as the needs of anyone else. Mm. So, We have that issue, particularly with caretaking. With self-reliance, if I am the person who is the sole one who believes I can only trust myself Mm -hmm. to handle things, Mm -hmm. I can only trust myself to do things correctly, Mm -hmm. I cannot trust anyone else to do it, then A, that means I'm probably overextending myself. Right. I'm probably over-functioning, doing too much for too long, for too many. Mm -hmm. I am also probably isolating others. No, I don't need your help. You're not going to do it right. Mm. Yeah, I got this. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And so there's only so long that I can do that and and function well um, because I can end up isolated Mm. and I uh, can end up burnt out so that by the time I make it to a therapist's office, if I do ever make it to a therapist's office, I'm coming at the edge of my distress, at the edge of my um, psychological distress, but also at the edge of my physical distress, because we know that our minds and our bodies, like they're connected, right? They're traveling around the same vehicle. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and yeah. Right. So you're just physically, mentally just on the edge of, yeah, breaking down, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And then, of course, we have affect regulation. If I am disconnected from my emotional experience because I spend so much time showing up in spaces being fine, Mm -hmm. that not only separates me from my emotions, but it also separates me 
from the ability to connect genuinely with someone else. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah. Yeah. Emotions, right, are communicators. They give us information and they allow us to connect through a place of authenticity and vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're showing up as sort of this blank slate, other people aren't reading you and what you're feeling. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you may not be reading yourself. Well, that too. Sure. Yeah. If you're so disconnected from or have had to be so disconnected from your emotional experience, you may not even know what's happening. The emotional piece. So when I looked at this particular factor in my dissertation, which was Uh, looking at the ways in which strength impacts the relationship between depression and suicide in Black women. This was the factor that had the strongest relationship between the two, which Mm -hmm. means, right, for the women who were experiencing depression, if they also had higher tendencies of regulating their emotions in that way, they were also more likely to express suicidal thoughts and suicidality. So that's a very real consequence of walking around the world this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. so much harder to ask for help when you get to that point, if I, I would imagine. Absolutely. That that would be, yeah, to say like, I'm struggling. I'm, I don't know what to do. I need help. Yes. Yes. Mm. And because you've learned for so long that you need to appear a certain way. You might walk into your therapist's office and your nails are done and your shoes are gorgeous and you're wearing a a well put together outfit and your hair is done and your makeup is flawless. Mm. And so you look like you're okay. Mm. You might actually look fabulous. And so the therapist may be hearing one thing and seeing another. Yeah. And so it might seem incongruent, but really that actually might be the way this looks for many Black women. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That makes so much sense, though. Like, yeah, if, if I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up looking, I'm not going to show how distraught I am. Right. But, you know, that's not going to show up in any of my physical appearance. I'm going right. to be, yeah. Right. You're not going to see my sweatpants and yeah. my well, flip-flops and the T-shirt I've been in for five days. Like, right. Know. Right. It's almost, uh, I'm thinking almost like armor, you know, like you, this is the, this is what you're, I'm going to show to the world. Yes, absolutely. Mm. I did have um, one patient say to me, the worse I feel, the better I look. Wow. Yep. Mm. So well, that's, that's really it, saying it? something. Yes, that's it, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So, so, so important to know as a therapist though, right? I mean- Especially as a white therapist, I guess I should say too. Me personally, as a, you know, to know that, yeah, that that's something to be aware of and to take, to, to, to make note of. Absolutely. Culturally. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that you, you said that because I've certainly um, experienced black women clients coming to me and saying, I've worked with other therapists. Um, Mm -hmm. I've worked with other white therapists And I've told them about all the things that I've gone through. And they've said things like, oh my gosh, you're so strong. That's amazing. Hmm. Um, Or, you know, I I can't believe that you are suffering so much given like how resilient you are. Hmm. 
And I'm sure that those therapists were well-meaning and were really trying to uh, highlight the ways in which these women were resilient and were uh, triumphant over their circumstances. Mm-hmm. But part of what the women heard was, all I see is your strength, mm. right? All I see is that you have survived and you continue to survive. I don't also see what it has cost you. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. And I would imagine it just almost reinforces yes. the sense that I have to just keep pushing through, being yep. strong, showing up in this way. Absolutely. Because if this person who's supposed to help me, if all they see is the same thing that everybody else sees, then what's the point? Yeah. 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 Ugh. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, I, yeah, I, yeah it's, uh, it's eye-opening for me, but it's also so, so uh, such an important point to me. Like, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to remind myself too, uh, you know, I, I have to um, remember that we are all multidimensional human beings and yes. what we see in our office is not necessarily the same as who our clients are when they walk out into the world or, or the faces that they show out yeah. in the world. Yeah. Um, and so when I, when I keep those things in mind and when I keep those stories in mind, it helps me to not be too distracted um, by some of the presentations that I see mm-hmm. um, because I absolutely over and over again have had the experience of having women in my office who look completely flawless, um, but inside are two steps away. Yeah, just from ready to fall apart. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, for some cultures that that seeking help, that asking for mental health help in particular can be very difficult. But then I would imagine when they do... And either the the impression is, oh, you've got it all together, you know, look at you, how strong you are, or going to a hospital where maybe the physician is stereotyping you as this crazy black woman, you know, you're right. so, you know, you're over the top, you don't deserve to get any help at all because you're right. whatever. That angry, that would, right? Ang- angry black woman. Exactly. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. it just must be very frustrating. And it frustrates me to think about it, but I, I have not experienced that myself. Right. But right. yeah, yeah. And frustrating, yes. And I would actually take it a step further and mm. say that sometimes it can be the difference between life or death. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, right. Yeah. But it, it really can be the difference of seeking help when you were in a crisis versus yeah. not seeking help. The Black community has a long tradition of working things out within the community, whether and whether that means working things out effectively and in a way that's really healthy for all the members or not, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that tradition kind of still exists. And I say the Black community as if we're a monolith, and I'm I'm aware that we are not a monolith. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also aware, though, that there is a common narrative for, for many Black folks. And for many Black folks, the narrative is what happens in the family stays in the family. 
Mm-hmm. And that that means literally like the family, but it also means more figuratively. The right? community. The, mm-hmm. the community. And like my business is my business and I don't need anybody else in my business. And if I have a problem, I go to God. Mm-hmm. And that's the the really the Judeo-Christian framework um, that many Black folks, whether they identify as Christian or not, many of them still were socialized or many of us were still socialized in that belief system. Mm-hmm. So what that means then is that my problems become something that I learn that I need to pray away Mm -hmm. or I need to kind of work it out between me and my Bible, right? Or I can go to my pastor for help. Mm -hmm. And there are many pastors who are very skilled at very many things. And many of them are not necessarily skilled at treating psychological distress. Right. Right. That there, there is another section of society that is specifically trained to treat psychological distress. Right. Um, and so, yes, that is often looked upon inside of the community by many folks as something that's letting other people in on your business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also looked at as a place that you cannot trust the Black community also has a long history of engaging with the medical establishment in ways that have turned out badly. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, so, you look at maternal mental health oh, for, for Black women, I mean, today, and, yes. and then, you know, experimentation and yep. all the other horrific things that happened in the past or, yeah. Absolutely. So in addition to a cultural narrative that says what happens here stays here, there also has been a cultural experience where the medical establishment has not been trustworthy. They have been harmful. They haven't been upfront about what they're really doing. And for better or worse, mental health has been a part of that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, you know, when I think about help seeking um, from African-Americans to folks outside of the community, I think about holding those those truths, holding the cultural narrative and holding the historical and contemporary reality that a Black person showing up in your office may actually have had a different experience of the medical establishment than someone who isn't Black showing up in your office. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if... You know, uh, if there are listeners who are struggling, Black women who do are recognizing, maybe I need some help. Maybe I would like to find a practitioner who would be willing to, you know, that that I I, I want to find help outside myself. Right. What What should they be looking for in a clinician, in a you know healthcare system? Are there things that can help them identify like this would be a better fit for me, or this is someone who is going to take into account all the cultural societal shit that potentially I've been through. Right. So I I think it's important for uh, black women to remember that they have a choice that they don't have to just kind of take what's given to them. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are several avenues that they can use. Uh, EAP is one for Mm -hmm. folks who are employed. That can actually be a great opportunity to kind of get your feet wet in therapy if you have never been in therapy before. And EAP, uh, for listeners who may not know, is your employee assistance program, which Mm -hmm. essentially covers mental health services. 
Um, and there's a, a limited amount of sessions that you get. It varies depending on the plan, but you have the opportunity to work with a mental health practitioner on um, particular stressors that you're experiencing. For some people, uh, going for those six to eight sessions can be really helpful and they don't feel like they need therapy after that. Maybe you're going through a relationship transition or a job transition or something that's kind of time limited. For other people, that can be a jumping off point to a longer term relationship, either with that therapist or, or someone else. So uh, one, I think access is important. Um, yes. Going where yes. you can kind of access care. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of that uh, may have been um, kind of ameliorated because of all the virtual care that's now happening. Mm. So there actually may be right an increase in access. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I would suggest is that there is a listing called therapy for black girls yes. that is really designed for um, recruiting therapists of color to work with people of color. Yeah. Um, and it's although it's called resource. therapy for black girls, right, it's not just for black girls. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I like to say that, too, it was created by this uh, phenomenal um, psychologist here in Atlanta. Um, and yes. she kind of, you know, has extended really what therapy for black girls is able to, to do and accomplish. Yeah, um, she's, yeah, Dr. Joy Dr. Harden. Joy. Yeah, yep. yeah, she's yep. great. She yep. is great. Doing good stuff. Doing good stuff, right? So psychology today is always an option of listings, and you can kind of type in the particular characteristics and concentrations that you are looking for in a therapist. Um, there's also good therapy, mm -hmm. which, which is a good option. So I, I think kind of access, having a sense of what you might need, um, trying people out. Sometimes people may have kind of three folks that they think they're interested in and they kind of go to the first session. Um, sometimes resources prevent that kind of thing, but mm -hmm. if you were able to kind of shop around a little bit, I would suggest that. Um, yeah. But, and always ask if they're willing to do like a, a at least a brief phone consult to yes. get a sense for who they are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and ask questions. Yeah. You might have some, some questions that you want to ask your therapist, bring your list, right. Um, you know, ask them if they've worked with black people before, if that's something that's important to you, or, uh, if you have other kind of social identity categories, right? Like if you're, if you're a part of the LGBTQ community and you want to know, like, have you ever worked with a gay person before? Am I your first? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Or a black person, right? Have you right. ever worked with a person of color? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So ask yeah. those questions. It's important. And and know that you you don't have to know all the answers. And actually, you go to therapy because you don't know all the answers. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that that's fine. And once you get there and you find someone that you connect to and you find someone who you think gets it, I really encourage folks to try to be as honest as they can. Mm -hmm. To really try to show up as authentically as you can. There are all these narratives about how we have to uh, not do that. And hopefully therapy can be a space where you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, I think being as honest as you can and also speaking up if it's not feeling good, like if Absolutely. the fit isn't right, like that's okay too. You yep. know, that this, the relationship should feel safe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. research tells us time and time again that no matter what technique we use as therapists, if their relationship isn't working, 
it's not working. It doesn't really, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You could be the best CPT therapist on the planet. Exactly. Connect to you and talk to you, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So thank you. I really just so much appreciate your taking the time to be on the podcast today. Um, but I want listeners to know how to find you. So how do they find you? So um, I work full time, but I also have a private practice that is called Standpoint Therapy and Organizational Consulting. And so you can find me at www.standpointtherapyandconsulting.org. Uh, I am also on Instagram, Dr. Nalaja. Um, those are probably the best places to find me. You can also email me, um, give me a call in my office. And I do do a, a consultation call. So you can kind of ask me all the questions and find out all the things before you decide if you want to work with me. Awesome. Awesome. I will include all of your contact information and your, the article that, that your dissertation, I guess, was written off of. I will yeah. include those in the show notes. Oh, thank you. And um, yeah, I really appreciate your being on the podcast today. And uh, hopefully I'll have you back again sometime in the future. So I appreciate you having me. And I also have just like a, a brief um, yeah, yeah. packet that I've created for a strong black woman. I used to do a, a workshop mm. here in Atlanta. And so I can kind of send that to you. So if any of your listeners kind of want a, a quick and dirty of what we talked about today, um, that they can reference that. Oh, that would be great. Um, that would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it would be awesome. I would love that. Great. Yes. All right. All right. Well, Nalaja, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to sort of seeing you more online. Oh, thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your evening. I really enjoyed that conversation with uh, Dr. Nalaja Green, and I hope you did too. She is an amazing resource for uh, better understanding the impact that the coping mechanism of the strong black woman has on black women and their mental health. I had a lot of great takeaways from that conversation. And as I said, probably one of the bigger uh, takeaways for me is that, you know, as a therapist, you tend to think if someone's looking good, they're all put together everything's on point, that they're okay, that they're, I mean, I think that we do that as people. We're like, all right, they look good. They must be feeling good. But maybe for black women, that is not the case. Maybe that looking good is a way to cope with all the turmoil or distress that's going on internally. And of course, that's not true across the board. Everybody is an individual and people cope in different ways. But that was very eye-opening and a uh, important for me as a therapist to know. One other resource that I did not mention uh, for getting help, for getting therapy for anyone is Open Path Collective. They are a uh, mental health resource for people who have like bad insurance or no insurance. I'm a member of Open Path Collective uh, here in Maryland. And 
and they provide low cost. They provide a listing of therapists who will do low lower cost therapy in your area. So Open Path Collective, I will also include that in the show notes. I hope you will check out her website and her uh, packet that she's going to offer the listeners and... You can find all of her information in the show notes, and I hope you all have a wonderful week. I hope you take care of yourselves and your mental health. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thanks for listening and subscribing to The Woman Warriors Podcast. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guests' profiles at womanwarriors.com. Thank you.